it's Tony Chapman, and welcome to Chatter That Matters. In this age of noise, I cut through the chaos and the confusion to focus on what matters most to your life, your career, your community, and our planet. At the beginning of every podcast, I ask an essential question, and then together, we go on a quest to mine for insights and identify the big ideas that will help you get to where you need to go. This will be the decade of disruption. Forces of change are gonna render much of what we know about capitalism, consumerism, education, healthcare, et cetera, et cetera, obsolete. Think about it, AI, artificial intelligence, it's gonna get faster, it's gonna get better, it's gonna get cheaper. It's gonna populate every corner of the marketplace. How about the platform economy? Digital thirsty apps that ride like a Trojan horse into a mobile device to bring the consumer more of what matters to them with less friction. You don't need to flag a taxi down anymore, you can summon it. Purpose and profit, going beyond immediate gratification to, to having organizations realize that they have to give back, they have to do more as corporate citizens. All of these forces have changed and, and add to that climate, the virus that's happening as we speak, everything that is going on, we have to come to terms as a society, what is gonna be the role of humanity going forward? What are our lives gonna be like, our livelihood, our community, and our planet? So for this interview, because as you know, I go on a quest to find some of these answers, I wanted to find someone that would have a well of knowledge, but also a balanced point of view. Someone who'd work for corporations, for the agencies that support them, someone who's a true digital native and understands the, the future of connectivity. Someone who believes in both technology and humanity. Please welcome to the podcast, Corby Fine. Corby, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Tony. Before we get into this question, the essential question is, what is the future of humanity within the future of technology? Let's talk about you. You, you First of all, you went to Ryerson, and a coincidence is this Saturday, I was with the uh, Ted Rogers School of Management as part of their annual conference. Incredible group of uh, diversity and passion and energy. So wh what made you choose Ryerson? Because I imagine when you went there, uh, you know, that wasn't as competitive as it is now compared to some of the other schools. Yeah, you're aging me. Um, you know, Ryerson to me was really an interesting school. Uh, it kind of offered the best of both worlds of sort of the theory of the lecture of large university. But, you know, what, what today I think we're finding with a lot of uh, millennials coming through the, the system, the ability to really co-op get hands on. And so uh, I worked for professors who were in industry. And I think that was the sort of uh, the mechanism by which co-op existed at the time. I worked for people who were doing work for industry at the same time. And so living projects and initiatives, um, not just in theory, but actually <laughs> handing them in and having them apply to, to real business. So that was really fun. And exciting. And then you, you, rather than just taking that undergraduate degree, then you went and got your MBA at Phoenix. And I think your degree, what was your degree? And it was... Um yeah, technology management focus uh, MBA. Um, again, you know, I think you got to stay true to what you're passionate about. I always knew uh, I love the, the the concept of how does technology apply to our lives? Um, what's the impact? How do we work with it? How do we evolve it? Uh, but doing it in a way that wasn't necessarily, you know, hands-on coding, really, you know, the applicability. So uh, more on the strategy, the, the, the development of business using technology. And, and that that's what it really gave me. And so your, your career, you, you went through a variety of different 
pivoting because it's sort of almost strike me as this curious person is trying to look at it from each area. Where did you find that you were the most comfortable and confident taking advantage of the experiences you were gaining in business and the experiences you gained in both Ryerson and getting your MBA at Phoenix? Yeah, well, here's one that you'll probably never hear. In the last 17 years, I went from selling Viagra to running a digital bank brand. <laughs> so, literally. Yeah. Um, and you know what? Through all of it, I would say that the, the, the most confident and, and comfortable and happy has been when I've been surrounded with like-minded people, right? It's, it's not so much what, you're, what I've been doing. It's doing it with people that are like-minded, that we've got you know, similar goals and objectives, passions, and that we're all there for the same reason, which is to do good stuff. So at the early stages of your career, that's almost luck that you find a culture like that as you're starting to build and you start hiring. But what are the attributes of that kind of culture? You talk about we're all trying to do the same thing. I mean, how do you know when you found that kind of place where everybody's kind of rowing the same way? There's, there's alignment in, in having conversations that while otherwise might be difficult, you don't, you don't, you don't give up and feel that you lost. You give up and you feel like, man, the person on my team, whoever it might be, their idea was right. You know, I, I got a, I got a letter from a co-op student maybe six to eight weeks ago. And he said to me, MBA, MBA student. And he said, I can't believe you actually let my recommendation be the one we went with. And I, and I said to him, what do you mean? And he said, well, you're, you're experienced, you're the boss. I said, why does that make my idea right? And so I think when you're willing to listen and you're willing to take everyone's opinion for what it is, which is potentially the right one, let democracy win, let the customer win. And so I think when people are willing to do that and not be the big elephant in the room, you know you're in the right place. It must be tough though, and you're certainly the age where you're digital native, but maybe somebody 10 years older than you and this new generation coming in armed with such, you know, they're playing so many new instruments in the orchestra. They're so confident in it. You know, they can look at TikTok and a second later decide if they, if they want it part of their song sheet or not. How do they get the confidence to let the young people have a voice knowing that it's quite possible that, that it's not just going to be a voice, but their job? Yeah, that, that's a really tough one. Um, the best C CEO I ever worked for he said, culture is the cheapest thing in the organization to change. And all he said was, it's what are the three questions that he as the CEO or anyone as a CEO would come in and ask, and does everybody get in line? And there are all the things that you do driven towards that. So one example would be uh, a CEO who comes in and says, how many, how many customers did we lose today? All the behaviors and activities, whether it's using technology or business processes or pricing, are going to be to prevent people from leaving. And if you flip that and you say, how many customers did we make happy today? Then you're going to find scenarios like over the Christmas break when the call center agent in the northwest of the U.S. you know, left her desk to go drive $20 to solve a customer's problem who was stuck out of gas with his card locked. And she got fired for it. <laughs> and so I think it's about knowing you're working in a place where everybody's empowered to do the right thing. And then it's not so much about the technology and figuring out TikTok. It's just about, it's about human you know, human nature wanting to help people. So you this higher purpose, and you, you actually wrote an article about culture is the easiest thing to change. And yet, so it's so difficult for a lot of people. I look at some of this ingrained, I, people that are kind of building these, uh, these castles with their own moat, and they don't want to lose control, or they don't want to lose what they feel they've built. And so, you know, the drawbridge come, might, might come down when it's convenient, but it very quickly moves up. How do you change a culture that goes from kind of, this is how it's always 
being to maybe let's try something new to see if it works better? Yeah, there's there's no real easy answer. Um, one of the one of the questions uh, that I've been asking lately. So I've spent the last three years in the financial services industry. Um, there's a really interesting question. Uh, why do all banks start their savings campaign on the same day, November 1st, in Canada? And there's pretty much a simple answer to that, which is it's the beginning of the new fiscal year. And which is the bank that's going to change the paradigm and simply say, but is that right for my six or seven or 12 or 15 million customers? And if it's not, then what do I need to do to figure out a way to make it better, more relevant and easier for them and change the paradigm from it's all about us as an organization to it's all about them as a customer. And and really it takes it takes leadership. It takes executives who can simply start to think about the long term and not about the next quarter. And the problem there is just m- so underlined with challenges that are rooted in history really coming down all the way to the compensation structure of how we think about paying people on a short-term basis. So you, it's just ingrained, and I've known you for a long time, and you've always talked about the customer being the hero. You've listened to my podcast, you know, I'm, I'm totally aligned with it, and put the customer first. But you just talked about a great barrier. that Well, we'll put the customer first, but it, not if it impacts my bonus or our fiscal year. So when you... Is that why we're seeing so many legacy businesses disrupted because the new businesses coming along don't have those sort of uh, concrete foundations that prevent them from being agile? It's it's an unfair advantage in many regards. I, I think about this all the time. So have you, you, you've used Uber, mm-hmm. you've used Lyft. Have you ever had a problem with one of them? No. Right. So one is don't shoot yourself in the foot. Right. Rule number one is build a business model and build a a, a journey and an experience that that kind of just works. But granted, things are going to go wrong. And what modern age businesses have taught the average consumer is that when things go wrong, there's no magic red phone to pick up. And there's someone sitting on the other end just begging for you to call. You can't find a phone number. You can't. In fact, even Amazon that does have a phone number, you can't dial in and be connected. They call you back. And as customers and consumers, we've been trained that that's okay for the new business. But could you imagine if your bank or your telecommunications provider or your, your energy company or utility, if you had a problem with them and they didn't have a phone number and they said, hit the button and wait, it'd be like mass chaos. It'd be like, what are you talking about? And so there is an ingrained expectation that legacy business models have legacy channels of communication. And new age business models have sort of been birthed from the mentality of, yeah, you know, like there's different ways to think about support. And I think that the large organizations that can figure out how to how to transport themselves into this new world model are going to be the winners. Clients are OK with it. It's a huge cost reduction. Uh, and at the end of the day, it just simplifies the experience of dealing with your organization. So we, let's talk about this platform economy, which is, the, you know, these these apps now that are driven off of uh, data. They, like a Trojan horse, they, they find their way into the mobile device. They give the consumer unprecedented power. I can now summon the chariot, Uber. Uh, you know, I, I can look and aggregate pricing for 15 different travel options in a heartbeat. I can post. I can see if people like my puppy pictures. I mean, it's, just, it's incredible power. It's, I call it more and less. More of what matters to me as an individual with less friction and less effort. But it comes at it with a price as well. And you, you even talk about, we'll get to it in a minute for a recent article you did. But the 
platform economies compressing the supply chain, it's changing it. And the question I have is who owns the customer? For example, McDonald's has spent billions, if not trillions of dollars, erecting golden arches all over the world, uh, training, operations, menu development, innovation, building this incredible brand. And then overnight, Uber Eats shows up. So how do you is it, it come to terms with as a business, legacy versus non-legacy, old business versus new, realizing that what is up for grabs is the kind of customer loyalty that your balance sheet's built on? It's interesting you use that example because today, literally today at lunch, my son who is 12 years old and his home by himself called me and said, I'm gonna order a particular brand on Uber Eats. And I asked him what the cost was. And he said, it's only $20. <laughs> it's only $20. And I love the fact that we're essentially training people that that luxury of one-click button fulfillment of my current desire is worth paying a premium for without any understanding of the, the sort of value of what you're getting. And you wrote a great article on this whole immediate gratification. And, you, and I think the article was that you said... Um, Eating in is the new dining out. And you're talking about how this immediate gratification, the, the downside of it, the sense I can wave my, my, my I can get my Big Mac while I'm watching my buddy play uh, hockey or uh, is it, it, it's going to create a fat and lazy culture. So there is a humanity side. You say there's a watch out for technology, too. Yeah. I mean, you know, um, we had an interesting debate uh, maybe about a year ago thinking about things like artificial intelligence and, and sort of data predictive modeling. Um there's an unfair advantage based on the lifestyle that you lead as an individual. So in Canada, we're really, you know, in, in, a, in an interesting situation where either uh, gender parent can take uh, parental leave. Could be the father, could be the mother. I know it's still predominantly the, the, the mother in, in this country, but it's equivalent, you know, it's equal to both. But when you build a mortgage adjudication model and someone's taken the year off because they've had a baby and it looks like they've had no income, how do you think the risk model is going to look when it comes time to say, hey, how much should we loan them? And if that's unfairly advantaged to females, for instance, are we not using data to basically screw ourselves out of what we could be and how good we could be? So there's definitely inherent risk. I think coming back to your previous question, uh, one of the things I like to say is rather than who owns the customer, you know, I think if you go in front of any organization, why don't you try this question? Who owns the homepage? <laughs> Like who in an organization, you want to talk about culture and argument and ownership and, and chaos, who owns the homepage? And, and there is no real answer, I have my opinion, and I actually think it is the customer. Because to your point around you know, data and understanding who's coming in the front door, well, if I've clicked on something, you kind of know my intent. If I search for something, you kind of know my intent. If I've been there before, you know my intent. And are you as a company and a, and a provider answering that intent to create that relationship, which ultimately says that the customer is the one who owns it. So I think all of those factors that you can do from a, you know, a digital personalization, they can work in a big box franchise as well. Uh, so I'm talking with Corby Fine and he's had this, uh, you know, took a undergraduate and then, a, and then an MBA at Phoenix University, all about information and data and technology and, and turned it in so far a stellar career. And we're just talking about the positive and negatives because in this decade of disruption that's coming. I mean, everything that we know, all the conventional rules of consumerism and capitalism are up for grabs and they're changing. How do you think individuals should start preparing so that they can be at, at, at 
try to be in step with these changes and start to continue to be relevant as somebody that can contribute to the, uh, the business of doing business? I think we as individuals need to understand um, the, the notion of fair value exchange for data. <clears throat> so I personally allow a large organization like Google to track my behavior. I know they read my emails because when I book a flight, it shows up in my calendar. I don't do anything, that's simplifying my life. But what's more important for me and why I do it is the fair value exchange that I have in my own head reconciled with a Google is that if my son has a hockey game tomorrow at 7.30 p.m. and I'm still sitting in the office and there's an accident on the highway that I'm otherwise unaware of, I'm good with and I'm okay with Google pushing me a little notification that says, hey, Corby, you might wanna get up off your desk and leave about 37 minutes earlier because otherwise you're not gonna make it. And so my value exchange and understanding how I want an organization to deal with me is don't let me screw up my son's life. <laughs> and in exchange for that, I'm okay with you making a few bucks on some advertising. And so when we think about flipping that, when you, when you go to work, when, you, when you're building products and experiences for, for consumers and other businesses, you need to put yourself in that perspective and think about not how you're gonna do it, but what's the value in doing it? And if you can't come up with a good enough value, yeah, maybe we should rethink whether that's a viable business model going forward. So when you start talking about value, which is something that is, uh, you, you've, you've come to terms with this fair exchange of value, but there is deep concern in society that uh, selling you a few, you know, making a few bucks selling you advertising is very different than what we're seeing in terms of uh, at least some people claiming that that data is now uh, changing the face of democracy. That data is now giving one company an unfair advantage over another. Uh, it's creating almost a monopolistic situation with an Amazon, for example, that can stack, stack everything in its advantage. How do we come to terms with consumers that want more of what matters to them with less friction and, and the, the dangerous, where's dangerous, the, the move of some move, some capitalists saying, I can do even more with that. Like, how do you find the fine line? That's a great question. I, I don't know that there's a, uh, a magic bullet answer for that. I think on one hand, the way in which we've created this ecosystem of, of fundraising and funding these startups, you know, the, the sort of soft bank model that, that says, I'm just going to put so much money into something that I'm also, uh, I'm also going to own the vertical, I'm going to kill the competition, and then I'll figure out how to actually make it worthwhile is, is you know, interesting. I, I'm not going to say that most of us have access to that world. And yet the output of that world with so few people at the top have created you know, businesses that we never thought would exist and have put, you know, legacy organizations out of, out of, out of, uh, out of business. On the flip side, you've got the businesses themselves that need to kind of say, um, is what I'm doing, uh, you know, hurting anyone? So I, I have a rule on, on my team. I have three rules on my team. Um, rule number three for anyone that's worked for me is pretty simple. You're allowed to break anything but the law as long as you don't intentionally hurt anybody along the way. And it's that fair balance between trying to be innovative um, and, and, and try new things, whether it's process product, business model, pricing, but just don't screw anybody. Like, mm. don't do it with, there are always casualties. It's different going in knowing there's going to be a target versus it's a, a byproduct. And that's a fine balance because that kind of means that everything you do, you have to think through to the end. So before we go to the next two rules, so the, the, you draw a line in the sand and you say that, you know, there could be some casualties, but we're not doing that with intent. We're doing that to innovate. The problem with that line is that, you know, it, people can push it gradually up so that what was a few 
casualties can come many. So when you start giving people permission to innovate, which is exciting, I'd love to work for a person like you. How do you know also make sure that they understand that innovating is exciting, innovating with compassion is even more exciting? So think back to that CEO story I said before. Uh, If the intent of the organization is to make people happy, you still have a common goal. If it's to prevent people from leaving, you might put punitive damages and fees in the play. So I, I think it's still underlying. Uh, it's a it's a it's a it's a direction or a rule that still needs to sit under underneath of an overall holistic culture and reason for being. And that's sh- that should still be positive in focus. So that that positive is focused on the customer. Give me the rule number two. Uh, rule number two uh, in 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 uh, in simple terms is say it so simply that your grandmother would understand it, which which really means. Like we get into such jar, like have you ever been in a meeting and at the end, someone across the table says, do you, do you have a glossary for those terms? Yeah, yeah there's no need. The, the fact that you need to even have that conversation, just say things, you know, we have T's and C's and legal and rules and regulations and compliance and just say it the way you mean it. And, uh, and you'll find things get much faster, simpler. Customers understand meetings are done quicker. Um, so just really keep it simple. And the first rule, uh, if you know something about someone, use it. And so the digital world says, oh, homepage personalization, I'll make things relevant. Try this. Next time you go somewhere, service, you know, a coffee shop, a restaurant, a gas station, and someone's got a name tag on, use their name. Watch the smile. Watch how much better service you get. And more importantly, when you come back next time, see if they remember you. That's great. Great advice. So as we move forward, we've talked a little bit about AI and the platform economy having a greater purpose. I want to come back again to the, to the listeners and saying, how do you, what advice would you give someone that was in university or starting out their career right now, knowing what you know in terms of what's coming in this sort of decade of disruption, that they can create some competitive immunity, that they can still have a career that has a, a bounce to it. And that maybe, you know, it can mirror the kind of career you've had where you've had success upon success. You know, personally, I've been one to, to kind of be passionate about diversity, diversity of thought, experience, uh, opportunity, uh, vertical um, jobs, function, bosses, etc. Uh, that's not for everyone. But I, I do think putting all, all of your eggs in one basket too early can be a little dangerous. And I say that because the, the best uh, engineer in the world, the best software developer in the world, the best salesperson in the world who doesn't have any exposure and experience to something else to sort of, you know, uh, balance it and wrap it with um, becomes very, very nuanced very quickly. And so you're seeing, and you know, we were seeing as, as in the last couple of years, as I hire and look at, look at people with different talent, it's not about, oh, I work in a bank, you've worked in a bank, I should hire you to work in a bank. It's, I work in a bank, you've done some amazing things in the travel vertical. How do we apply that? So take a look at, so people coming in, the old days it was, you had to have a certain degree and a certain amount of experience in the industry. Now you're saying, fill your knapsack with a lot of interesting things. You know, the amount of information that we have access to, it's so diverse. It comes at us and changes so rapidly. Um, I spent my I spent my winter holiday break this year um, while sitting on the beach uh, in Florida with my kids building a Shopify store. And I did it because I wanted to understand the new way of launching an e-commerce infrastructure in seven days with $300 because that's what you're competing with. And so, you know, think about uh, what are the things that make you passionate and what can you do to learn about them? Whether it's, 
you know, how, how I remember, you know, my, my grandfather saying, oh, I used to want to know how a transistor radio works, so I took it apart, to today's world of, well, I want to understand how e-commerce works, so I'm going to build a Shopify store. Be inquisitive. Learn something. It doesn't mean it has to be your career, but you'll find so many opportunities to take that little knowledge of, of, of a little nugget of knowledge and apply it to a scenario you never otherwise would have thought uh, there was applicability to. So managing upstream, because you've come in, uh, you know, very often uh, some I'd say young for your age and with a fairly robust portfolio. How do you get people above you to apply, to have that same kind of value what you value, which is, you know, the sense of curiosity, uh, experiment, don't be worried, as long as you're not breaking the law, innovate. Because a lot of people got to where they are, they kind of just want to hang on to what they're doing and the legacy is quite important to them. They don't want disturbers as much as they want you know, uh, they want a nice, calm heartbeat. So how, how do you how do you take your passion and your conviction and get people that might not be that interested in it to become interested? That's 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 the trillion tri- trillion dollar with inflation these days. It's I don't know. We've, we've gone dollars. from billion to million. Yeah. Anyway, so the trillion dollar question. Um, honestly, uh, coaching. So, you know, to me, the art of coaching is is asking questions and not telling. And when you ask people questions done in the right way, people come up with their own answers. And when they come up with their own answers, they're bought in, right? They're gonna have a higher success of, of, of a higher degree of success of actually getting there because it's their own convicted answers. So the trick in coaching is asking the questions that you kind of know where you wanna get someone to in the end. And, and I find, you know, um, having worked for some really great leaders, one, I've been lucky enough to work for leaders who are, I would say, more like-minded than myself. So step one is if you have a choice, find someone that's a little more like-minded. If you don't, and or you're, you know, you inherit a boss through work change and other things, um, or you just don't have the choice because you really want that job, you know, you gotta find a way to coach up, not manage up. Um, managing up is uh, telling them what they want. Coaching up is asking them things that'll get them to the same answer as you. And it's, it's uh, part art, part science. Um, but if you can get somebody excited about what you're excited about through asking questions, I, I actually, I challenge people all the time, pick one day a, a week or at least a month and uh, with everyone in your organization, don't tell them anything. Make it question Thursday. And all you can do is speak in questions. It forces people to think differently. And um, it's, uh, anyway, it's quite a quite an interesting challenge, but, but you gotta coach your boss to get there. You can't tell them to get there. So I get to ask you a final question. Um, decade, this decade of disruption, Give me a sense of life five years from now and, and what we'll be experiencing given that you are, spend your holidays building Shopify stores. So you're, you're always looking at the next big bat. What's, what's it gonna be like in five years? Uh, five years from now, I, I really believe we're gonna be speaking way more to our technology than typing. I think the concept of conversational um, interface is really, really critical. Uh, going to vending machines and pushing buttons will be gone. Instead, it'll be, I'd like a Coke, please. And so the question is, do we care about the word please and how we do that? Meaning, what is the humanity and the level of ethics that we think about when we design conversational AI? What's going to happen with the world's plethora of knowledge that's currently indexed in Google, the way it was designed to be written and read as opposed to spoken? And there's a huge transformation of that underlying data as a result of that. So brands and companies and products are gonna have to rethink, how would I talk to my customer? Not through advertisements and marketing and T's and C's, but actually talk 
to my customer. I think that's going to be one of the biggest transformations. And, and I think we're starting to see that. The second one is going to be like we talked earlier around the ethics of AI, the ethical use of data and not not the way we think about ethics today on. Well, is it creepy if I understand the transactions of my customer, how they spend their money or surf the web? That's today's ethics. Tomorrow's ethics are going to get way deeper. Does the gender bias come in? Do I care if they were born in a foreign country and moved here versus they were born here in the first place? Does it, does that impede on or create different opportunities for different people? That's uh, that's a huge risk and something I think we need to be seriously concerned about today. So listening to uh, Corby today, you know, I always end my podcast, but what I've learned and what I've learned here was just one thing. It's probably the most important lesson in life. And if you listen generously to what Corby had to say, put the customer first. It's not your bonus. It's not your fiscal year. It's not the fact that you happen to be in a leadership position or in a, a legacy or how you've always done it. Put the consumer first. Understand their journey. How can I help them get to where they want to go? Ask a lot of questions. Create a culture where you're not afraid for people to take risks, make mistakes. Yeah, there'll be some casualties, but the what you might gain in terms of extraordinary value to that consumer, the smile you can put on their face. And speaking of consumers, when a guy like Corby, as busy as he is, says, you know, when you walk into a coffee shop and you see someone's name tag, say hello, mention them by name. Chances are you'll get better service. But more importantly, they'll remember you. You'll remember them. That's where humanity has to intersect with technology. Tony Chapman, thanks for listening to Chatter That Matters. You've been listening to Chatter That Matters. If you haven't done so already, subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. You can connect with Tony on Twitter at Tony Chapman, through LinkedIn at Tony Chapman Reactions, or visit his website, TonyChapmanReactions.com. Chatter That Matters is produced by Tony Chapman Reactions and Eye Contact Productions. I'm Dave Trafford.